Lord, help us to seek the truth, come whence it may, cost what it will. Amen. I'd like to talk with you about being Christian in an election. More broadly, this is about following Jesus as we faithfully engage the world, but it hits close to home in election season. Because in the next two months, we are likely to see a lot of religious authorities aligning themselves with the powers and the principalities. We will see collars and pulpits and suits and glitzy advertisements on TV and social media telling us how to vote, what to think, and maybe even where to get our news. And I don't know about you, but I am not looking for cable news dressed up with some biblical commentary. I've been legitimately wondering how to be Christian in an election. We have at least two bad options before us, staying out of it completely and taking hyper-partisan positions. The first option is to do nothing and just put on a good Sunday show. Sadly, this is the option that much of mainline Christianity, including the Episcopal Church, has taken more often than we'd like to admit, especially during slavery, when our church did not take a public position, or during civil rights, when, for example, signing the minister's manifesto would affect your budget and your staff in material ways because some people might take their money and leave. And in fact, they did, after All Saints signed it. So you could see why it seemed like the safer option just to stay out of it. The first bad option says, don't bring politics into church. This is a place to talk only of religious things. Folks will draw their own conclusions. Stay out of it. But is silence ever the safer option? A second bad option is to take the road of partisan religion. And that is to campaign for a candidate or a party to generate rage, fear, and manufactured moral righteousness that nobody even pretends to keep. To build media empires and megachurches and billion-dollar universities and to clog the airwaves with, with issues the Bible literally does not address, specifically abortion and consensual loving gay relationships, while at the same time dodging the issues we find in the actual Bible. We can neither speak nor act meaningfully of liberating an enslaved people from oppression or food for the hungry or care for the sick or welcome from the immigrant stranger or just mercy for the accused or stewardship of creation or so many other gospel values without asking questions of policy and influence and resource. These are the literal definitions of politics. Jesus of Nazareth, the one we meet in the Gospels, cares about this. He did not get crucified for being nice. He was not promoted for his religious views absent a social context. Rather, he proclaimed God's love through God's kingdom, and he changed the local particulars of the neighborhood. So can we reflect faithfully on these political questions while avoiding strident partisanship? Here I'm putting my finger on a nerve that much of mainline Protestant Christianity feels. It is indeed dangerous to reflect with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper 
in the other. Especially, especially when much of the church thinks Christianity is defined by judgment and hypocrisy and strident partisanship. And yet surely people have a role to play in conducting the public business with honesty and respect and love. Today we observe our nation at war within itself. Vile epithets abound, invective, public shaming, and disdain now mark our public life. Truth is trashed. Bald-faced lies go unanswered by Christian leaders. Officials thought to be noble look at their shoes, acquiescing in the most egregious misconduct, behavior that would shock our political forebears of all stripes. Hate matched by torchlight in Charlottesville, and many would not call its name. Explicit racism seeps from the halls of power, while moral clarity seems to be in short supply. Babies are wrenched from their mother's arms, families separated, children in cages, and such meanness has been embraced as necessary, even contrived, to teach cruel lessons to those seeking new hope in this land. The flames of violence are fanned, for political benefit, and perhaps most ominously, the animus that pervades the public square corrodes our public conversation. You see, government that is by and of and for the people requires mutual trust and respect so we can reconcile our differences and arrive at consensus in service of the common good. Today's vile speech and conduct blinds us, actually, to the tragic consequences of a mean-spirited ineptitude. People are dying. This is not normal. Something is deeply wrong. We face not a Republican problem nor a Democrat problem, but rather an American problem that begs the concerns of us all. Is there a middle way for people of faith, for Christians, for followers of Jesus, between these two bad options of saying nothing and getting hyper-partisan? I think there is. I'd like to propose a Christian's response to what ails us, one that calls us to ageless values and bridges the chasm between what is and what could yet be, that prophet's task. It is, as St. Francis said, to preach the gospel at all times when necessary using specific words, to proclaim Christ's gospel of love without fear, offering gospel prescriptions for just and moral conduct in the community, including in its public square. And so if you hear only one thing today, this is it. We should not stay silent in the face of wrongdoing. We should not cloak ourselves in partisan religion. Rather, we should faithfully engage the world in love. It is not partisan to preach virtue and to practice integrity, justice, and kindness. No, it comes from the good book. 
It is not partisan to preach the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. No, this is the gospel. It is not partisan to preach the protection of God's creation. Rather, it is the command of the scriptures. It is not partisan to weep and protest when people are treated as beasts, when lies replace truth, or when crowds chant shameful words from our worst history. The gospel of Jesus of Nazareth calls us to take a stand in these moments. As Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton demands, If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew, said that silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Right now, people are hungry for gospel good news. The kind of good news that calls for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The kind of good news that says when you love your neighbor as yourself, you are truly fulfilling the law, as Paul writes in the book of Romans in today's scriptures. You are truly fulfilling the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. You can take that to the bank and turn it in for a mortgage and build a house on it, and plan the neighborhood around that, and build your community and your schools on that premise, and set your nation on that idea, and write your laws around that concept, and love can be your source, your foundation. Indeed, love is the fulfillment of the law, because love does no wrong to the neighbor. And who is the neighbor? This great question throughout the scriptures. Literally, Everyone you have any interaction with in any way at any time, which in a global society is literally everything that's alive. All creation is our neighbor. Consider that our Constitution takes up just a few dozen pages, yet reams of laws have been written based on its concepts. Now imagine an even shorter, more powerful, more boiled-down Constitution that becomes the foundation of all laws everywhere. Indeed, when the lawyer asks Jesus which law is the most important, what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. This is the first great commandment. And the second is like unto it, which for Luke meant basically as important as, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and all the prophets. So as we seek to faithfully engage the world now, literally to be a Christian in an election, what are we to do? Let love be our first principle. Love will ground us. Love will guide us. Love will bring us home. Second, Let's all vote. No matter who we're planning to vote for, let's all vote our conscience and do everything we can to empower our family and friends and neighbors to vote. Third, let's hold ourselves and our government to the standard that love fulfills the law and nothing else does. Let's speak the truth, contest lies, and call for good leadership at every level. Fourth, let's ground ourselves in daily scripture, study, and prayer so we remember what those gospel values really are. 
And finally, let this community, All Saints Church, dispersed across the greater Atlanta and even an even larger area, let this community be one of love and respect and kindness and understanding. Because the cold reality is on November 4th or 5th or 10th or whenever this election gets called, we're going to have some very happy people. We're going to have some very angry people. And we're going to have a good number of disillusioned people. Whether we have a President Biden or a President Trump, whatever happens in down-ballot races, some of us are going to be thrilled, while others of us are going to be convinced that we should all move to Canada because the -the fill-in-the-blank party is trying to destroy America. Our gospel this morning is all about reconciliation, one of Jesus' great contributions to the common good. What makes us Christian is not whether we fight or disagree or even wound each other, but how we go about addressing and resolving those hurts, how we go about repairing those breaches through the gift of reconciliation. Let it be said of us that we had something to say and we said it in love, but let it also be said of us that we had some things to understand and we listened in love too. I have said these things to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.